0: Greetings, and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show, coming at you from Moray Bay Studios, where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. I am your host, Matt Asher. Before we get to my guest today, and you will absolutely want to stick around for that, but because this is the very first episode of the radio show, please know that if you are listening to this on the air, this show is also a podcast. In fact, it began life that way, as The Filter and it lives on that way, visit mattasher.com to download past episodes, including this entire show if you miss any of it or want to hear my full unedited conversations. If you are listening to this on podcast, I've got good news for you. If you happen to be in South Florida, you can listen to the show early before it hits the podcast feed on Keys Talk Radio 96.9 and 102.5 FM. This is now a weekly show, so podcast episodes will come out regularly, instead of whenever my lazy self feels like recording something. So, you're welcome. You're also welcome to a brief explanation of what this show is about, but I'm not going to provide a brief explanation, or more accurately, I'm going to provide a brief summary, but it almost certainly won't make any sense to you, so I'm going to follow that up with a complicated description of what it all means. Here's the brief summary. This is a show about unknown knowns, which means that each week I'll be exploring, usually with a guest, some topic that falls into the fourth quadrant of understanding, the one we talk about the least, if ever. To explain that quadrant, though, let's start with the quadrants of knowledge you almost certainly already understand, at least at some level. To get us started, I'm going to bring in one Donald Henry Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense under Gerald Ford, and then again under George W. Bush, the second Bush to start a war in Iraq. When asked about the lack of clear evidence linking Iraq with weapons of mass destruction and terrorist groups, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld replied,
1: Reports that say there's, that, that, that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me, because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know.
0: Rumsfeld's statement is one of the most poetic apologias ever offered in defense of proactive warfare. To be maximally charitable to Secretary Rumsfeld in that moment, his reasoning of itself isn't wrong. Proving that something hasn't happened is indeed tricky business, and the role of the military is to deal with all threats to national security, not just enemies who have already bombed our shores." And yet Rumsfeld, either intentionally or through a stunning lack of imagination, committed the fatal flaw of ignoring that final, unstated quadrant and what it could have told him. Again, to be as fair as possible, very few people spend time thinking about this quadrant as it's the most ephemeral and hardest to grasp. This is a show about the authors and artists and newsmakers who help us to see that quadrant and what they find there. Let me go back, though, and look through the categories. Known knowns are the most straightforward. You know that you know how to spell cat. That's a known known. You know the ancient Egyptians had a word for cat because you know they turned cats into mummies and took eternal dirt naps with them. But you have no idea what that word sounded like. That's a known unknown, and probably will remain so forever. Unknown unknowns are the ones that can sneak up on us at any given time. There's a vast cloud of unknowns so far off our radar, we don't even know they exist or even that we could be looking at them. It's hard to talk about these because they are the things we don't know that we don't know. I'd put anything related to aliens in this category. We think we can speculate about what they would look like and how they would treat us because we've seen Independence Day and signs, but we're fooling ourselves. They may be living amongst us already as cephalopods, and they could turn out to be each as large as Saturn or as small as Uranus. And yes, there will be bad jokes on this show, and digressions. But to get to the final quadrant, before we bring on my very first guest on radio, what are unknown knowns? Here's one. If you are a native English speaker, you have a built-in ability to order a series of adjectives in real time in accordance with a set of rules you almost certainly never thought about explicitly. You know that, for example, that if I'm holding two lovely old yellow Japanese brush pens, This sounds fine, but I'd never say I was holding two Japanese brush yellow old lovely pens, because that's just not right. It's even hard for me to say. But now, you know that you know how to do this, so it's no longer an unknown known. As I say, this can be an ephemeral category. There's another, more abstract kind of unknown known. These often take the form of things we actually know somewhere in the back of our minds, but for any number of reasons don't want to confront or think through. This is the kind of unknown known that got Rumsfeld in trouble, because with his background he undoubtedly knew that a large-scale Middle Eastern war would likely destabilize the region and drag us into an endless quagmire. By the time of Gulf War Part II. This knowledge was so widespread that it had become part of a bit in the wonderful movie The Princess Bride. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia. Everyone at the top levels knew this, but they didn't consider it, or at least not publicly. Sometimes unknown knowns can be forbidden spaces, the things we all know but don't want to fully recognize or deal with. In this sense, unknown knowns can be the kissing cousins of magical thinking, or magical avoision, the things we prefer not to think about. Some of these might be better left of unthought of, like the near certainty that our romantic partners have, at some point in their lives, suffered bouts of explosive diarrhea. We prefer to leave these truths hidden, in the fourth quadrant, where they belong." This show is about the truths that are better plucked out of the fourth quadrant and turned into known knowns, or at the very least, known unknowns. Most of the innovative work happening at the frontiers of science and culture fits this description. For example, we all know that humans are merging with machines, and many of us will soon be having relations with them in the Clintonian sense. But how many of us have taken the time to try and really understand what that means for us? I'll have on the people who have, and the ones working on the frontiers of bespoke genetic engineering, superhuman AI, animal intelligence, drone warfare, and maybe even somebody who can tell us why we still don't have those jetpacks we've been waiting for. Certain kinds of extreme athletes and adventurers fit this description as well. I'm not talking about the ones who shave a couple milliseconds off a track and field record, but the ones who decide to climb Mount Everest in only their shorts— or, say, go for a record-breaking dive in a hole so dangerous that it's already claimed the life of the guy who set the last record. Which brings me to my very first guest. Tim Zimmerman is a Washington, D.C.-based writer and a former senior editor and diplomatic correspondent for U.S. News and World Report. He's also a contributing editor for Outside Magazine, where in 2005 he published a story called Raising the Dead, my all-time favorite magazine article about pushing the limits of what humans can or should attempt. Tim, welcome to More Bay Radio.
1: Happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. Before we get into the story itself, I'm wondering if you could give us some background on how this came about and how you came to know about uh, the the dive and what happened.
1: Um, it was a little bit by chance. I, at the time, I was. Uh, writing for fun, really, uh, an adventure blog um, in which I tracked extreme uh, record attempts and anything else that caught my eye, and I saw a little news report um, that Dave Shaw had gone to the bottom of um, a cave in South Africa and had found a body, and the initial news report I saw intimated or suggested that he'd been so freaked out by seeing a body that he raced to the surface, so a completely inaccurate news report. And I wrote um, a somewhat, um, somewhat, um, you know, just sort of jokey, uh, unserious uh, item about it on my blog um, and posted it. And the next day I got an email and it said, hi, I'm Dave Shaw. Um, I read your report on your blog. And uh, I thought you might like to know the real story of what happened uh, in Bushman's Hole. And um, feeling somewhat ashamed that I had, 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 hadn't had taken it as seriously as I might have, I emailed him back and we had an, uh, an amazing phone conversation um, about um, his dive and what how he'd found the body of Dion Dreyer. And then he said, and I'm going back in January to try to retrieve the body. And I immediately said, well, I'd love to try to cover this and you know, will you stay in touch and keep me posted with what's happening? Um, and so we began a kind of email exchange over the couple of months. Um, in advance of, of his dive, um, and then um, I was following it as closely as I could on the day of the dive. I was still in Washington, um, and I got the reports of what had happened, and outside immediately agreed to send me to South Africa to do a full feature story on, on the whole dive and, and how it had turned out.
0: Yeah, and before we get into that, so this is Bushman's Hole, which is in South Africa.
1: Yep, it's in the Cape in the Cape Territories uh, on the grounds of a game farm Um, and it's a very interesting place. You would it it, it just from the, you know, the from the from the surface, it's just a very small pool of water. Um, But it turns out that once you go down into the water through a kind of a, a narrow chimney, it opens up into the largest underground freshwater cave in the world. And it's also i think the third deepest under uh, freshwater cave in the world um, and in the previous 20 years it had become a kind of a mecca for deep cave diving experts to go explore and that's why dave shaw eventually ended up uh, diving there um, and um, trying to um, set a record there
0: so there's Three main people in the story, and somewhat confusingly or not, they're Dave, Don, and I guess the third one is a body, Dion. Um, so, how did Dion end up as a, a body at the bottom of uh, Bushman's Hole?
1: Dion was a university student and very adventure inclined. Um, he was always off racing cars, he was unable to sit still, and he loved diving. And he was invited by his university dive club to join them on a, on a dive in Bushman's hole. Um, and he was very excited about it and eager to do it. And he went with them and they did a practice dive one day. And as they were coming up, um, they noticed, the, a light down below them. And it's just to describe Bushman's hole. Once you get down into the cave itself, it's just an enormous chamber, something like 700 by sort of 400 feet. Uh, across and over 900 feet deep. Um, The water is completely still because it's a cave, but it's also absolutely black and dark. Um, And as the students were coming up from the dive, they saw a light below them and they did a quick uh, head count of the divers with them. They realized that one person was missing and that Dion was not there. Um, The guy who was leading that dive immediately started swimming down to try to catch up to dion but he realized that the light was over 100 feet below him and already sinking fast um, and that he himself would probably end up dead if he continued to try to chase the body down into bushman's hole and they did an inquest and no one really knows what happened to dion but diving that deep there are so many things that can go wrong with all the gases and the effects they have on your body and the best guess is that dion suffered what's called carbon dioxide blackout, where just you're breathing a little too rapidly and carbon dioxide builds up in your system and eventually it causes you to black out. And so the theory is that he blacked out and he just sank to the bottom.
0: So there are a lot of things that can go wrong when you're diving, that's one of them. I suppose this raises the question of what you know was it appropriate for Dion in the first place to be doing this dive, or did he just get unlucky? This is this is a risky business in general, right?
1: It's it's a risky business. Uh, Dion was a very experienced diver by then. He I think he'd had over two hundred dives um, since he took up diving, so he knew what he was doing. But the I guess the margins for error when you're at those sorts of depths are just very, very narrow. Um, and if you uh, aren't breathing correctly, um, you can black out. If you're not paying proper attention to your decompression tables, you can suffer the bends. When, when you go that deep, um, your body absorbs nitrogen and helium, which are in your gas mix. Um, and if you come up too fast, it um, the, the gases will release from your tissues rapidly um, causing sort of equivalent of aneurysms um, and they can either kill you or they can cause you great pain. So there's just all that's kinds of the bends. That's that, called the bends, happens, which most yeah. people are yeah familiar with. Um, and um, the other thing that happens is when you're breathing nitrogen um, and the gases that you're breathing at such deep depths, they have a narcotic effect on you. And so not only are the tolerances or the margins for error, very narrow, but, The deeper you go and the longer you're down there the less capacity you have to think clearly so in a way there's you're you're racing time in terms of the narcosis that you're accumulating um, and trying to manage you know super technical and um um, questions of gas mixes and decompressions while you're having um you're, you're developing an inability to think clearly it's very much like being drunk um So anyways, it is a dangerous, you know, pursuit in the end, it takes a very clear thinking person, a very disciplined person. Um, And even if you're all of those things, which Dave Shaw certainly was, you know, things can go wrong. That's part of the allure part of the adventure for anybody is your life is in your own hands, and there's no guarantee um, that you're going to you're going to make it.
0: So Dion doesn't make it. Something happens to him, whether it's uh, carbon dioxide buildup or, or something else, and he floats down to the bottom of Bushman's Hole, and there he, he lays, his body lays for uh, how long was he down there before he was born? He
1: was down there uh, almost 10 years before Dave Shaw found him. Um, and the thing was, Dion's parents, I mean, you can imagine just the tragedy and the sorrow they felt at losing you know, a, a son who was so young, they did try to recover the body. The, uh, Dion's father, Theo, hired an underwater robot from the De Beers mining company to try to scan the bottom and try to see if they could find Dion. And they didn't find him. And the dryers resolved just that Dion was going to be there forever. And there's a plaque as you walk down the path to Bushman's Hole um, to Dion. And he, everyone knew that Dion, you know, had died there. And everyone knew that there was a body um, at the bottom of Bushman's Hole, so so that's why when Dave Shaw found his body when he did a record dive there, he knew immediately that it was Dion Dreyer. So
0: he, he finds the body, and his immediate thought is, can't just leave it here. I need to get come back, get the body, and deliver it to the parents, which is um, a you know a noble thing to do, but also uh, something that's never been done before, right?
1: Yes. Well, certainly something that had never been done at that depth that anyone knew of. And it kind of reflects the kind of person Dave Shaw was. In the first place, when he found the body, most divers who go to set records in Bushman's Hole, um, only two previously had been on the bottom, Uh, a record, a South African diver called Nuno Gomez, who set a record going to the bottom, and also an American, Shek Exley, who went to the bottom. Um, they go down and then they come right back up. Um, They're mostly diving with what people are familiar with as just normal scuba diving equipment where you have an air tank with you and you're breathing that air. And that sort of diving builds up um, uh, gases in your blood much quicker, it requires a lot more gas. Dave Shaw, being a very technical person and someone who was trying to push the frontiers of technology, adopted what's called rebreather technology, which is a specialized kind of diving equipment where you basically have a device that's recycling the air you breathe and adding little bits of oxygen back into it. So there's no bubbles. uh, Everything is very well controlled and you don't build up the big decompression time requirements that you do with... Traditional scuba diving gear. And what that means is you can spend a little more time on the bottom. And that's what Dave Shaw wanted to do. When he found Dion's body, he wanted to set a record on a rebreather at the bottom of Bushman's Hole, but he also wanted to explore a little bit. And because he was exploring, he found Dion's body. He initially actually tried to bring the body up on that first dive. He grabbed it and he tried to see if he could lift it. And for whatever reason, he felt that he couldn't lift it. He felt that um, Dion's body, which was still encased in a wetsuit, he felt and had his um, scuba gear on. He felt that the tanks and the and the harness that Dion was in were somehow stuck in the mud. And the last thing you can do when you're that deep breathing those gases is to work too hard. Um, and so he realized if he couldn't get him up very quickly and easily on that first go, you know, that he had to leave him. And so he tied off a line of rope there, a reel of line that he had. Um, And he went back and ascended.
0: He comes back up. He doesn't uh, take uh, Dion's body then, and he announces to everyone okay, we've got this body, and then we'll uh, have to pick up the rest of the story here right after the break. I'm talking with Tim Zimmerman, who wrote a piece for Outside Magazine, and where we left things off, we were at the bottom of a very deep hole, a a pool of water in South Africa, where a body was found, and uh, the person who found it came back up to the surface, and maybe you can catch us up from there.
1: Yeah, so I mean, when Dave Shaw was ascending from discovering the body, he spent about 10 hours decompressing (laughs) So he had a lot of time to think about it. And when he got to the surface, he turned to Don Shirley, who's sort of his wingman in all these adventures and said, I'd like to recover the body. Don Shirley, knowing Dave Shaw, knew that he was going to say that. And Dave Shaw went to the parents of Dion Dreyer um, and said, "You know, I'd like to recover your boy. And having resigned themselves to the body of their son being at the bottom of Bushman's Hole for all eternity, given this chance to recover the body, they immediately said yes um, with enormous gratitude um So, Dave Shaw was doing something noble in a way, um but he did comment to one of the other divers who said, Oh, it's great that we're bringing this body back. He said, Come on, face it. You know, we're doing this for the adventure of it. So, there was that element for him. And obviously, that was part of his motivation for trying to orchestrate what would be the deepest body recovery um in diving history.
0: Right. And so, this is. These kind of expeditions, they're, they're not the kind of thing where they turn around a day later and go right back into the hole. This is a something that takes a significant amount of planning. And because what they're doing with their rebreathers is sort of on the cutting edge of technology, they are, they're preparing their gear, they're getting things up. How long does it take before everything is ready to go back in and, and go after the body?
1: they spend about three or four months planning the dive um and i think part of the you know the the challenge for guys like dave Sean, don shirley is the planning side of it also it's incredibly technical um they had up to 10 divers who were going to be involved in this recovery all with different roles going into the water at different times rendezvousing at different depths Um, and so that took a lot of thought and the other thing they had to think a lot about Um, was what kind of condition the body would be in. Could they just grab the wetsuit and bring the body up in the wetsuit? they consulted forensic experts who thought that maybe the body would be somewhat decomposed. And so because of that, they made a a critical decision that they would bring a light body bag down to the bottom of Bushman's hole and put Dion in that so that when they brought him back to the surface, everything would remain intact. Um, And so, And the third element of the planning was they also were in collaborating with a South African filmmaker named Gordon Hiles who wanted to do a documentary about this incredibly interesting dive that was going on in his backyard. Um, And so he designed a helmet camera that Dave Shaw would wear. Um, Dave Shaw had never worn a helmet before and he hadn't had a camera on top of his head. So they had to figure out how to integrate that into how he would conduct the dive. So there were all these elements that they had to put together um, but they did, and they had the dive plan to go off in early January um, of 2005.
0: So they they have this plan. They've done all this planning. They've they've tweaked their, their gear, these rebreathers, which had never been down this deep, as far as I understand from the story, um, and they all assemble there, and this is not just a little operation with one or two people. There's a, a, a person who's kind of the dive master up on the shore and there are police there too right because this is the recovery of a a dead body so they all get there they accumulate at the shore they've thought things through he puts on the helmet he disappears down into the water and then from the point of view of the people on the shore they hear nothing right
1: Well, that's and that's one of the big challenges is so we have all you have all these divers going down into the water at different times, Dave going first to go to the bottom, Don Shirley, his um, close friend is supposed to go in next, and he's going to be the first person to rendezvous with Shaw as he's coming back up off the bottom with Dion's body. Um, And if anything goes wrong, there's no real way to communicate effectively what's happening. They have systems where divers meeting one another can write on slates and those can get passed up. But with all the different decompression times, you can imagine that's a very slow system of communication and also slates get mixed up. So it's hard, it's hard to know whether they're in sequence or not. Um, before the dive, because Shaw understood how complex this was, he told everyone that the most important thing was for them to take care of their own safety. And that if he got into trouble he didn't want anyone coming down to get him the only person he spoke to about the possibility of someone trying to come down and help him if he got into trouble was don shirley but he told don shirley don't come down unless you see me signal you to come down um so you basically design the dive you have it all orchestrated and then you execute the dive But anything that goes wrong during the dive will have to be dealt with in the moment with very little communication between all the divers. So So, it's a real challenge to manage.
0: This is one of the things that's puzzling to me, maybe because I just don't understand the technology. But we... Uh, and, and I have been diving myself, though, certainly to nowhere near these depths. But it's interesting to me that we are able to communicate with astronauts hundreds of miles above Earth, thousands of miles away, and yet the best we can do underwater is to write with these little kind of crayon pens on a on a slate. How come there's no, you know, there's no real-time communication solution?
1: Um, that's a really good question. Um at the time, so this was, you know, 15 years ago, um, there might be some sort of underwater. I mean, basically it would mean they're just more cables in the water. Um, I don't think that there's the ability or technology for remote communication um, that isn't hardwired. Um, So, and anything that would exist would probably be very expensive. So I don't think that anyone felt that this was a big flaw in the dive plan. They were prepared to deal with it, it did turn out to be confusing once things started to not go as planned. Um, But I'm not it wasn't that there was some, you know, communication device sitting on the shelf that they could have used if they had wanted to and they had just chosen not to. It just is a reality that you're if you're deep, deep underwater in a cave, it's just not very easy to communicate with anybody else.
0: This certainly adds to the drama of the story and the danger of what they're doing. Because if someone it gets in trouble, you don't necessarily know about it until someone looks. Right? You can't be in continual communication with all of the people on a, a technical dive like this.
1: That's absolutely right. And you have to also um, imagine, you know, when when someone's layered up in dive gear, it's also pretty hard to know who you're looking at unless you're face to face with them, you know, uh, with a line between you. Um, obviously everyone knew that Dave was the deepest diver, but once you get to the, uh, intermediate depths where there's divers shuttling back and forth, it's pretty hard to keep track of who's who and what's going on. So there is at least the potential for confusion in this sort of dive. If things go off schedule and you have to improvise as you're diving, but it's just, again, another reality and another danger, um, in a dangerous sport or a dangerous endeavor.
0: But at any rate, the dive starts out okay for Dave. He is on um, schedule, headed down to the bottom. And he hits the bottom, uh, and then he he goes looking for the body, right?
1: That's right. He goes to the body, and he's, he's ahead of schedule. He has time. Um, and when he gets to the body... Um, instead of it being stuck in the bottom, as he expected, because that's how it seemed to him when he had first discovered it a few months earlier, the body is suddenly floating free when he tries to manipulate the body and prepare for it to go into the um, body bag. Um, and I don't know which is the right way to tell the story, but I can continue with Dave's story here, which is, um, or maybe we'll go. So, so Dave is, is on the bottom. He's trying to to work to get Dion into the body bag. He had practiced with that bag um, on Don Shirley, um, at Don Shirley's dive site where he trains divers and it did seem to go okay. I think it's better to take the story to Don Shirley who comes into the water 13 minutes after Dave has gone and he goes down to about 800 feet. Um, and he sees the water is so clear that he sees Dave's light below him, but he also sees that it's not moving. So by this time, probably about 20 minutes Dave shaw's been in the water about 20 minutes it took him about 11 minutes to get to the bottom he was supposed to spend a few minutes getting dion into the bag and he should have been on his way up to meet don shirley already but when don shirley gets down to their meeting point at 800 feet on a line that's called a shot line that goes down into the cave so the divers can all sort of stay in the same place um he sees that dave's not there and he also sees that dave's light is just still don shirley being experienced knows that that means that Dave is probably in trouble, like a still a light that's not moving is a very bad bad sign. It also means Dave Shaw is not signaling him to come down. But Dave Shaw and Don Shirley are really um, incredibly good friends. And Don Shirley decides he will try to go down and see what's going on with Dave, and to try to help him if he can, he starts to descend. And again, the technologies are just vulnerable to these kinds of enormous pressures at depth. And the controller that he uses to automatically manage all the gases that he's breathing suddenly blows up or implodes under all the pressure. What that means is that he has to do all the gas management manually. And the idea that he could go to the bottom and continue to do that to try to help Dave, if Dave can be helped, and then get back up is impossible. So he has to make the very difficult decision just to try to save himself as Dave Shaw had asked everybody to do at that point and to try to get back to the surface using manual manipulation of all the, the gases on the rebreather that he has. Um, and so he, can, he starts to head up. Um, all the other divers are coming in according to their schedule to meet. They were expecting to see Don, Don Shirley with the body. Um, they, the first two divers who reached Don Shirley see that there's no body, there's no Dave Shaw below. Um, and Don Shirley um, writes on a slate, Dave question mark um and the slate eventually gets passed up but it's not really clear what the slates mean so there's a lot of confusion on the surface as to what's going on um and obviously a lot of consternation on the part of the people gathered there dion's parents um had joined and come to the side of bushman's hole after dave had started to descend because they wanted to be there when their boy was coming up so now in the videos of them gathered at the the edge of bushman's hole you can just see the shock and worry on their faces because now they realize that maybe another person might be in trouble due to the fact that he's trying to help them recover their son.
0: So that's up on the surface. Meanwhile, um, Don is is coming back up to the surface, but he can't just come right up back to the surface. He's got to decompress and because he went all the way to the bottom he's got a lot of or not all the way to the bottom but he went deeper than he was intending he's got a lot of decompressing to do so he's just sort of floating there in the water knowing that every moment that goes by it's more and more likely that dave is down there as well for the duration being forever basically
1: Yes. I mean, Dave Shaw, actually, before they dove, they all had a meeting um, and Dave Shaw and Don Shirley said if either of them did not survive the dive, they wanted to be left there forever. So Don Shirley knows that Dave is probably gone. He knows that Dave is at the bottom. He'll be there with Dion at this point point. Um, and that he himself, Don Shirley, has a big challenge to get out of Bushman's Hole alive as well um, with his uh, dive computer not operating correctly. Um, he's decompressing at different depths as he's slowly working his way up. And as he gets towards the top of the cave, um, he suddenly starts to, uh, feel nausea. Um, and the cave starts spinning around him. And basically because he's, he's suffering from some type of the bends now, um, the fact that his computer broke, you know, meant that things were just off enough that the decompression times weren't working properly for him. And so now he's in a serious world of trouble because he loses touch with the shot line initially, which is the only guide to, you know, how to get back to the surface. Um, Everything is spinning around. He feels like he's in a washing machine. He manages, and really the story of how Don Shirley um, deals with this crisis and then has just the determination to survive this is um, probably underrepresented in the story I wrote. Um, it's impossible for me to imagine how he managed to survive this. I did a little dive into Bushman's Hole with one of the divers. Mm. Um, just because I felt, I mean, I haven't done a lot of diving, but I've done en- enough diving. I felt comfortable to to do a dive into Bushman's Hole. Um, and I went down with one of the divers in through the little chimney. Um, and I and it was, you know, it's pitch black. And all I can remember was thinking there's 900 feet of just dark water beneath me. And actually my, uh, I was a little overweighted. And so I was constantly swimming to kind of stay level. Mm -hmm. I should have just put a little air into my BC vest, you know, kind of compensated correctly. But again, like, you know, there's just so much going on. Um, But anyways, it made me realize just how alone and vulnerable you feel in that situation. So when Don Shirley, you know, suffered this crisis, physical crisis of the bends, you know it took all his training all his experience all his discipline to find the shot line again and then just to calm himself down and to slowly slowly continue his decompression he continued to have nausea and vomiting into the water so he started to get dehydrated divers are shuttling down to him but there's nothing really they can do for him he just has to keep working his way up through these decompression stops and then hope he'll survive one of the preparations they've done um, through in the, you know, the planning phase, and it really was a thorough plan, was they brought a decompression chamber, which they kept at the top of the kind of cliff that surrounds Bushman's Hole. So if he could make it out of the water alive, he knew there was a decompression chamber he could get into pretty quickly. Um, and so he had that hope, and he continued um, just to, uh, you know, just to persist and to to do what he had to do to stay alive, to try to get out of the cave.
0: I, I try to imagine some, some- Fascinating story to read that you've written and very much puts you in that place of being suspended in the black void in in the middle of nothing. And it's almost like you're more in space than one might be in space where you can see stars and other things that will give you some kind of a a landmark to position yourself. But to be just floating in the vastness of of a a black nothing is just... Kind of an incredible. At any rate, we will pick this back up, and you need to stick with us because this story goes in a in a very unexpected and interesting way. I'm back with Tim Zimmerman, and we are talking about a dive to recover a body, and at this point in the story, things have have gone wrong. Uh, There's one more person who is not coming back, and we have one person who is struggling for his life. Uh, He does eventually make it to the surface, and they do make use of that uh, decompression chamber, but it is... Touch and go, isn't it, for Don?
1: The more I learned about diving, and the more I understood the situation Don was in, the more impressed I am that he survived. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, that many divers would have made would have made it. But one thing about Don Shirley, he has this unbelievable, just steely resolve, um, and he's very low key, but he's absolutely, you know, determined. You mentioned earlier just what it would like to be in this void of blackness in these caves. And the interesting thing about that comment, which is totally true, I think, it is like being in space and these cave divers, they think of themselves or they compare it, you know, to astronauts and they take pride in the fact that more people have been on the moon than have been to the bottom of Bushman's Hole. Um, In addition to making it very difficult if things go wrong, this idea of floating and avoid a void of blackness is also the great appeal of cave diving. That's what those guys live for. Um, so the the isolation um, and the solitude that they feel when things are going right in the cave is also the danger when things go wrong, because you're very much on your own. Um, and as I said, even though divers could get to Don Shirley, there's nothing they can do for him other than just to encourage him and help him try to get to the surface. Um, but he did make it, as you say, and then they had to. They had to haul him up on a stretcher up to the top of the cliff and into the into the decompression changer and, and he survived he did and part of it was that he said he, he he's married to a very feisty um, south african woman named andre and part of part of his motivation he said was he just he could he couldn't deal with you know how andre would um feel and chastise him if he didn't make it back to her so anyways he had a lot of motivation to to survive and you know i'm glad he did he's a wonderful guy.
0: Yeah, so so he he makes it out and he survives. But at at that moment, everybody's there on the shore and everybody knows it's game over for, for Dave. He's down there. The body of Dion is down there. And it seems like that's where... Things are just going to be left. Uh, A guy died trying to rescue a body, which is an an interesting thing, and I want to ask you about your thoughts on that, um, even if it was also for the adventure. But it is a a thing that people are interested in the body, but... Before we get there, we it seems like that would be the end of the story. Everybody would wrap up, go home. It was a, a tragedy following a tragedy a decade earlier, and that's that. But that's not what happens, is it?
1: No. And just to set the scene, also, um, you know, the weather on the day of this dive was just kind of gray and drizzly. Um, so you can imagine they started at 6 a.m. in the morning when Dave Shaw first went into the water. Um, I think it's not till like 7 p.m. that Don Shirley finally makes it out alive um, late in the day. And you can just imagine the sense of tragedy and sorrow. I mean, the whole thing turned into a fiasco. I mean, Dave Shaw, this, you know, this force of nature, this, you know, diver they all looked up to, you know, had just died. Um, and so with the weather and everything else, I mean, just the the, the you know, the atmosphere of just, you know, failure and sorrow must have been intense. Dave Shaw, he knew, I mean, he's one of those guys, I think, who has an enormous amount of self confidence. He was smart enough to know there's always risks. And he was upfront about accepting the risks. Um, his wife, Anne, um, understood that she was married to this guy who she loved. And the only way she could support him was to somehow just cope with the fact that he was going to do these dives and do what she can, could to get through them. He was very careful about her feelings. And before he went on the dive, he gave her the impression that the dive was gonna be a day later um, because she wanted to hit her, him to call her immediately. Um, and what he was hoping was he would do the dive on the Saturday when she thought it was on the Sunday. And he would call her up Saturday evening and say, don't worry, the dive's already over and it all went well. He did say he would get um, their local vicar Someone to contact him if the dive went wrong, um, and so after he, after Dave does not make it out, Anne receives a knock on the door, and when she sees it, the she knows immediately what's happened. So, not only is Dave Shaw not making it out, but you know this, this his you know his family is is now suffering through the tragedy also, and everyone disperses to try to deal with the sorrow of it, um, and they left behind a very interesting, charismatic guy called Peter Herbst, who was known as Big B. He was a, one of Don Shirley's main dive lieutenants. He was a key member in the dive team. And he's one of those guys who was always doing the grunt work. And he was left behind to try to retrieve all the lines in the water. They left all kinds of spare tanks in the water. Um, and so he, most people dispersed and um, Peter Herbst went with a few of the police divers basically a few days later to kind of clean up the aftermath of the dive and tr- retrieve all the gear um and he starts pulling on lines he gets in the water and they have to they pull up the shot start pulling up the shot line um and as he's doing that suddenly he sees two bodies coming up from beneath him um and it turned out that dave shaw was tangled up with the shot line and with dion dreyer um and so since the the line that dave had left to find his way back to dion was attached to this shot line going down to the bottom when peter Herbst started pulling up the shot line to retrieve all the tanks that were attached to it he started pulling up the bodies too and for people who understand the physics of sort of hydrodynamics as the bodies start to come up get any gases in them expand they start to get more buoyant and so as they reached a certain depth they started to float up by themselves and these two bodies to peter Herbst's astonishment suddenly go floating by him and end up on the roof of the cave. Um, so he just realizes that the bodies are coming out now also, and he's recovered both bodies. Um, with the help of the police divers, they get all the gear out, and now they have both bodies of Dave Shaw and Dionne Sh- Dreyer out of Bushman Hole on the shore there.
0: So in a weird way, the the mission of Dave succeeds, though certainly not how anybody would have wanted it to. Um, he, you know, his own body is recovered along with the other one. And as well, so he still has the camera on his head, right? That was the camera that the documentary filmmaker had uh, fashioned for him to wear and document his body recovery.
1: That's right. Um so after Dave disappeared or was left on the bottom, of course, everyone would wonder well, what happened. What happened to Dave? But he's 900 feet down. No one's ever going to get down there to just probably anytime soon to find out. Um, before I talk about that, I want to say one thing about the, you know, the recovery of Dion's body. Um, and you suggested maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I wanted to mention this now. Um, Dave Shaw mission was completed in, as you said, because Dion's body was recovered. And of course, there's a, there's a question of like, it, how is it worth it to recover a body? You know, you know, was that just an excuse to go on an adventure? What's the meaning of recovering a body? And the one thing I want to say about that is that when I went to speak to Dion Dreyer's parents, um, his mother uh, talked about what it meant to get the the body of her dead son back. And of course. You know for anyone who's a parent you can understand that even though a child is dead which is the most unspeakable tragedy you can imagine you know how there might be some comfort in being able to bury a body to create a um you know a, a put a body in a cemetery to somehow memorialize the death of your child and the most emotional experience i had while reporting this whole story was listening to marie Dreyer, um talk about what it was like to go into the local morgue and see the body of her son again and the body by that time, and this apologies for anyone who find this a little grotesque, um, had, did not have a head on it anymore. When Dave Shaw first discovered the body, the flesh on the on the head had, had disappeared and it was just a skull. And by the time the body came up, it was just a body in a, in a wetsuit. Um, Marie Dreyer described seeing the body of her son there and going to hug it again. And the feeling she had when she could hug her dead son again and and the and, and the feelings I had as she started to cry about that were just the most incredible emotionally intense moment of reporting this story, and it helped me understand, you know, why, you know, there's something so important about trying to recover a body, and why that was so meaningful to that family. And so even though Dave Shaw did die, it wasn't just a, a an adventure tragedy where he tried something extreme um, and failed. He also did something quite noble. He really did returned Dion Dreyer to his parents, and that, for them, meant everything in the world. And it was very powerful, I think. And so that adds value, I think, to what he tried to achieve and what he did achieve with this dive.
0: Yeah, it is, for the parents, um, kind of an amazing thing, though that's an, an interesting thing. I've been in a circumstance where I've been around something that was effectively a body of someone that I knew and loved. And I actually for my own part, have somewhat mixed feelings about that, about being around that and what it does in terms of coloring your own memory of the person. But if it was a good thing for them, then it was obviously a good thing.
1: Right. So anyways, just to get back to your question, um, everyone, of course, desperate to know what happened to Dave Shaw. And he's wearing a helmet camera, which will tell the whole story. And this is, you know, for me, well, and for everyone, really, this was why this story is so amazing because you had this incredible tragedy but the and, and it was just a mystery attached to it but then you have what you need to see exactly what happened to dave shaw um and so they recovered the video and uh gordon hiles and don shirley first watched it um almost immediately after they brought it to the surface peter herbst got a hold of them and said dave's body came up and i have the video um, and then don shirley watched it repeatedly like just looking for every little detail. Um but essentially what happened to Dave Shaw is the video reveals. And I don't know if it's still on YouTube, but you can find it the, is you can it's find still the video. I, I it's did like watch a 12, 13 minute video, I think. Um, but anyway, so Dave Shaw gets to gets to Dion's body. And the video, you know, for for a reporter, it's just invaluable to have the scene play out before your eyes. It shows that, you know, Dave Shaw, you know, grabs the body. As I said earlier, the body is floating free. And so it's If he touches it, it starts turning and twisting. And you can hear the thing that's most powerful in the video and the thing that Don Shirley commented on to me. You can hear Dave's breathing. Um, And the breathing is key because it tells you sort of the state of the diver's mind, but also the the breathing is key to how the diver will do physiologically at those depths. And you can hear Dave breathing. And his breathing rate starts to increase as he starts to struggle to get Dion's body into the um, body bag. When you look at the video. Both Don Shirley reacted this way. I, I don't know if you reacted this way. You start to think, forget the body bag. You know, the body's right there. It's free. It's floating. Go up, go up. Just, why are just, you messing with the body bag? Let it go. Why, it go? why not you just the come back
0: up? We are actually running out of time here for the radio show, but uh, if it's okay with you and you can stick around, we'll continue on the podcast. And if you want, folks can uh, continue to listen. This will be posted to mattasher.com, the full version of our interview, and we'll continue there. But for now, we're going to wrap up here. Maybe you could tell us, Tim, where's the best place right now to find your writings?
1: Um, Right now, um, I'm one of the many journalists who is messing around with a new publishing platform called Substack. My Substack is called Sailing into the Anthropocene. I've always been uh, a lifelong sailor, someone who loves being on the oceans. Um, And at the same time, through my work and outside, I've become very interested and aware of so many environmental and other climate issues. And so I write about sailing, I write about ocean adventures. Um, but all with a little bit through the lens of what's happening to the planet, what's happening to the oceans, and how we should think about that as we try to get out into the onto the water.
0: Excellent. So we're going to leave it there on the show, and we'll continue along. Check it out on the podcast. If you're listening to this that means you are listening to the podcast version of the matt asher radio show and i'm continuing my discussion here with tim zimmerman and we were talking about the the effort of of dave to recover a body and the moment and and i did see the video and you are watching it and you're you know you're listening to it and you're thinking yeah just just turn around, just go back, let it go, come back another day, something unexpected has happened, uh, you know, call the audible. But then you have to keep in mind that when you're diving that deep, you are not in your normal state of mind. And it's hard for me to put myself, I've been drunk before, I think most adults have at some point. But I don't know if this is exactly being drunk, right? It's definitely you're in an altered state.
1: Uh, I have been drunk as well, um, but I have not suffered from deep water narcosis. Um, but I, I think I think the reason people compare it to being drunk or or compared to drinking martinis—that was the example people kept giving me. It's like you just downed a bunch of martinis. I think the point of it is not that you. Um, is you know, not that you get kind of crazy and wild, but more that you have a lot of trouble being agile and flexible in your thinking. Um, and I think that this question of why Dave Shaw didn't just put the body bag aside when he was having so much trouble getting Dion into it and just bring the body up, which was the whole point, um, also turns on the fact that Dave Shaw was a um, a jumbo jet pilot he was very mission-oriented, very detail-oriented. Those guys work on checklists. That's why he was such a good deep cave rebreather diver. And I think that the plan was to put Dion in a body bag. So in Dave Shaw's world, if that's your plan, you try to execute the plan. And so I think that when you take that mentality to the bottom of Bushman's Hole and you start to get into trouble and you add in the narcosis, and the which basically gives you sort of a fuzzy thinking, you know, you get preoccupied. That's how you end up with Dave Shaw, completely preoccupied with getting Dion into a body bag, which is causing all sorts of entanglements with, you know, the lines that are there. Um, and and Dave Shaw had talked about um, the fact that he was wearing a helmet with a camera. And he was a little hesitant at first because one of the first rules of these sorts of extreme adventures is you don't change your protocol just before you're going to execute the most dangerous or difficult mission of your life Um, and the reason that turned out to be important was that dave shaw you have a cave light hanging down on a cord and dave shaw would have that attached to his wrist if he ever had to put it down when he wasn't wearing the helmet he would just sling it around his neck so it wasn't floating all divers will tell you that you don't want a gear and equipment floating in the water because you can get entanglements and that could cause problems But Dave Shaw, because he was wearing the camera and the helmet, um, let his cave light float free. And all the divers like Don Shirley, who saw the cave light floating free, immediately said, uh oh. Um, And so the cave lights floating free on a cable, you've got the shot line and you can see in the video, you can see the thin white line just kind of swirling around Dion is, is moving around in the water and basically gear gets tangled eventually dave shaw realizes this isn't working i am in mortal danger and he tries to 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 abandon dion and leave and you can see in the video he's breathing very heavily by now and there's sort of a sharp bark that's occurring like he's just like gasping a little bit um when don shirley saw that he he realized how deeply in trouble Dave Shaw was and one of the exercises Don Shirley did was to try to match his breathing as he watched the video to Dave Shaw. So he could get a sense of what was happening to Dave physiologically. And he said that as he matched his breathing to Dave Shaw's, he almost passed out himself while he was watching the video. So you get a sense of how far Dave Shaw was pushing his body, but eventually he turns, he, he realizes he he's in big trouble. He has to leave and he turns to leave. And you can see him making progress across the cave floor. And then you see that progress stop. And what's happening, although Dave Shaw doesn't really realize it, at this point you can see kind of how mentally he's like just a little bit confused. What's happened is that the lines are tangled with his cave light and basically Dave Shaw is tangled up with Dion Dreyer. And as he's leaving, he's trying to drag Dion Dreyer's body with him. Um, And that's extra work. And I don't know whether Dion's body snags on something or whatever, but basically, Dave Shaw comes to a halt, and then he dies there because he can't move, he can't escape the entanglement he has with Deon Dreyer. So that's how, you know, we realize what happened to Dave Shaw. And that's how the story of, of, of his body recovery effort and how it went wrong is able to be told because the camera and the video came out with it.
0: It's really an amazing story. And as i Read it. I've read it now a number of times, and it seems like each time I read it, I, I find I'm holding my own breath at times uh, throughout the story. And it, it's interesting to, in that you know things go wrong, and that's a problem. But they have a plan, and the plan is supposed to solve the problem, but not that problem. And one of the very one of the interesting aspects of the story is that because so much is on the line in these dives and because there's such a little margin of error there's they're very specific rules for what people are supposed to do and not do and everything is planned out and yet at the same time every single diver seems to make their own decisions to some extent around that so they're they're very hard and fast rules, but then, you know, Don's like, well, I'm going down anyway because it's my friend and because I care about him, but then he has to abort. But so there's always the plan, and then there's always a little wiggle room around that plan, at least in the minds of the people who are on the dive.
1: Yes. Um, and actually, it, it goes to also show you, well, I mean, the first that your point about there are rules, there are rules, and to be successful, you have to follow them almost all the time. But if you think about guys like Dave Shaw or anyone who pushes what's possible beyond what you know what people believe is possible, they have to break some rules. Um, and the reason they're comfortable breaking rules is they have enormous confidence in their own abilities. And so it's an interesting tension between needing to follow rules, but if you want to set new frontiers, you have to break some rules. Um, and Dave Shaw definitely, uh, was someone who believed in following protocols and following the rules, but he took risks because he wanted to go deeper. He wanted to go far. He wanted to do things people hadn't done before. Don Shirley took a huge risk going down to try to find help Dave if he could, um, and he almost died. And in the end, you know, what's part of you know the outcome of all these types of stories is luck is involved, and that's something you can never quantify. Don Shirley was lucky. He somehow managed to grab the shot line after he was spinning and nauseous and didn't disappear like Dion Dreyer did. Dave Shaw was unlucky. When he left the body, he was so tangled up with it, he couldn't get back to the shot line to ascend. And so there's always this small element of luck, which often in the end, you know, no matter how disciplined, no matter how experienced an explorer is, you know, can determine their fate. And that's what makes any story like this, I think, so suspenseful. Um, and sometimes difficult and tragic to read.
0: For sure you know and we all we all gamble with our lives every time you get in a, a car you're gambling with your life and even just hanging out at home who knows an asteroid could hit. But the there is something about this particular, uh sport or adventure or exploration whatever you want to call it that is really orders of magnitude more dangerous than just about anything out there maybe wingsuit uh would be the closest thing to you know to setting records uh diving in water it it, it for sure just on based on the data it, it puts you at a, a level of risk that's well above uh um really just about anything else. And I wonder what it must be like to be in the place of of going down and doing these things, knowing that not just is this something that you, you know, you might something some freak occurrence might happen and kill you, but that there really is a, a solid probability, a Russian roulette style probability that something is gonna go really wrong.
1: I don't um, I don't think Dave Shaw would consider it like that he was playing Russian roulette. I think that he understood that the margins for error were tiny, but the important thing to remember is the risk is commensurate with the reward. That's why these guys do this. They take enormous risks, but they also feel they're doing it in a way where they and their own training experience and discipline are the primary factors determining whether they survive those risks. And so if they do survive the risks, then the rewards they feel for achieving that are substantial. There is in the end though, as you say, always a little element of unforeseen circumstance of bad luck or whatever. Um, And they understand they can't control that. And that's just part of the game, I guess, um, for them. Um, But those are acceptable risks. I don't think that they would do it if they felt that there was a roulette quality to it. I think they're willing to do it if they feel like there's a lightning could strike quality to it. Um, These guys are not, I mean, what's so interesting is people often ask me if I'm writing about people doing extreme things, like they are, how crazy are they? And the interesting thing is these guys are the least crazy people you meet. They're so methodical. They're so meticulous. They're so careful. Um, But they're putting themselves in situation and environments where you could be a hundred percent careful and you just don't know that you're going to make it. Um, but that's what they love to do. That's where they find meaning uh, and reward. I don't think that I'm wired like that um, or most people are, but, but these guys are, and you know, that's the ultimate challenge for them. That's why they love doing this sort of thing.
0: I certainly understand that at least from the perspective of the aspect of control. I much prefer driving to flying and dri- flying makes me more nervous than driving i still do it but it does make me significantly more nervous than getting in the car and driving even though um you know my background is stats i know the odds they're much better with me uh in a plane than than driving even though i'm a pretty good driver but uh You know, there is something about having your hand on the wheel, even if someone else could swerve into your lane at any moment, and you just wouldn't have time to react. But that, that and I wouldn't call it an illusion of control. It's not an illusion. You do have control. It's just that, especially in their case, when you're doing something that's never been done before, you are surrounded by, let's just say, poetically, this giant black mass and expanse of unknown. Um, and because it's an unknown, anything in there can happen, like your you know rebreather failing or whatever else it is, and then that's it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, uh, and these guys are definitely feel they're controlling their own fate, even though that there are unforeseen risks or things that could happen. Um, It's something I was thinking about yesterday when I watched Richard Branson go up into suborbital space. I thought like, I thought to myself, you know, yes, it would be an amazing experience to be, you know, on the edge of space to be weightless, But I also thought like he's just sitting in the seat. Like I would feel weird to me. Like he's completely at the mercy of his engineers, of the pilots, everybody else. He has no real control other than the effort he put into putting together a good team. So that's the kind of risk that doesn't appeal to me personally and certainly wouldn't appeal to Dave Shaw or someone else um, like Don Shirley. Um, And so I do think that you put your finger on a crucial part of it. These guys are testing themselves. You know, they need to be in control of their own fates because that is the ultimate test of themselves. And that's where the reward for them lies. If they take enormous risks or they put themselves in risky, difficult situations and they survive, it's because their skills and experience allowed them to do it. That to me, I can see why that risk would be worth taking. I'm less, I find risks where people are just doing things where they hope it turns out and they're relying on other people um, to get through. Safely, that I don't see the appeal of that so much. So Richard Brant, you know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't pay whatever it would cost to go up in Richard Branson's space plane. I wouldn't <laughs> mind being offered the opportunity to fly it, however, but uh, you know, there's a big difference I think between the two.
0: For sure, for sure, there is. What one other thought that uh, comes into my mind about this, and you're talking about the rewardingness of the experience to the people in it, and I think one indicator of the satisfaction that they must be getting out of this is that a lot of extreme sports you are certainly trading a high degree of risk but you get in return whatever adrenaline rush or pleasure you get from the the activity itself but you also get a high degree of of celebrity in one form or another, of accolades, of whatever else it is. Uh, you know, if you tell a regular person, hey, I made it to the top of Mount Everest they'll be like oh fantastic tell me about it that's that's wonderful even though you know the absolute risk is not that uh, n- not nearly as high as you know as the activities that uh, the guys were engaged in here so the fact that they were willing to do something this risky and then not get what is often the additional payout of of the world throwing roses at your feet that, you know, that certainly the first people to land on the moon got, you know, then there there must really be a lot there in terms of the reward of the activity itself or the satisfaction that they get personally. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And, you know, guys like Dave Shaw and Don Shirley, you know, they have egos. They are, you know, they have profound self-belief in The idea that they are the best at what they do but they don't seek publicity like their reward comes in knowing them knowing themselves that they managed to do something enormously difficult um and you know so uh and to me that's the right kind of reward i mean i don't think people should take crazy risks just because they want to be a viral video on instagram or you know that i don't really understand that um but also in today's world, I mean, I think about this a lot now. I mean, we, our culture is so oriented towards convenience and minimizing risk. Um, in some ways, it makes me all the more eager to get out of my comfort zone and we all, you know, and to test myself. It's not to go to the bottom of Bushman's hole, but it is good for us to get out of our comfort zones a little bit, have to rely a little bit on judgment and experience. Um, because otherwise, I don't know, what do we become if, if everything is so safe, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a strange way to live if, if, if there's no risk involved at all, or there's no adventure that puts you out somewhere beautiful or interesting on an ocean or in the tube of a big, you know, surfing wave. Um, I don't know whatever people would find appealing, but I don't know. That's part of why I do what I do and write what I write, because I think people should get out of their comfort zones and find something that they will find super rewarding and meaningful if they just push themselves a bit.
0: It is an interesting moment that we are in uh, where there's not a lot of cultural support, it seems like, for that way of living, for taking risks and I think, and this may be a controversial take, but especially for men, it's important. It's just part of who we are that at some points in our lives, we, we should uh, go out at least a little bit on the edge and take some risks. And that is where the, the rewards are too. And the understanding you mentioned, an understanding of yourself. I don't know that that can really be gained unless you are doing an activity where you have some significant skin in the game one way or another.
1: No, absolutely. I I personally don't think it matters whether you're a man or a woman in today's culture. I do think that if you test yourself a bit, if you put yourself in situations where there is some risk, I'm not saying people should go out and risk their lives, but put themselves in the backcountry you know, without easy communication, where you have to rely on your wits a little bit, you have to rely on your own resilience, you find out things about yourself um, that are worth knowing for sure. And I think it's especially important in modern culture. I mean, 100 years ago, people lived lives that, you know, were tough and required risk, you know, uh, fairly, you know, every day, probably, but these days, everything is so risk minimized. Um, I think we don't really find out much about ourselves. So it is worth, I think, you know, getting out of your comfort zone a little bit. That's the best way I can put it. And when you do, you often end up with incredible stories or experiences, you know, that you never otherwise will have. And, you know, I think that there's an appreciation, you'll appreciate what you discover um, if you try it for sure.
0: Well put, well put. Tim, thanks for coming on the show.
1: That's my pleasure.